Good morning, Conduit. Um, my name is Jessica, and I am the Director of Operations here. And I'm so happy that today I'm the one that has the privilege of saying welcome home to all of you. Here at Conduit, we aim to be a place that feels like home every time you walk through our front door, that you're greeted by people that love you and see you like your family does, and that you can find a safe, warm, welcoming place here at Conduit to uh, grow in your relationship with Jesus, grow in community. Um, and I'm just so excited. Whether today is your first time or your 400th time here, welcome home. Um, in the back of your pews, you will find cards that look like this. If you are someone who's new here and you want to get connected, you can go ahead and fill this out and drop it in that silver bucket at the back of the aisle. But also, um, we are really excited that on August 28th, we're going to be gathering outside again under the tent for our end of summer picnic that we've been doing annually, but also for baptisms. And if you are somebody who um, has been thinking about being baptized, if that's something that the Lord has laid on your heart, whether you're a new believer or someone who's been walking with Jesus for a really long time and you just haven't gotten around to it, you can also fill out one of these cards and check mark on the bottom where it says, I'm ready to take the next step, baptisms, and Pastor Luke will connect with you in the next couple weeks so we can make sure that you don't wait any longer and you can get baptized with us on August 28th. I'm really excited about that, too. <laughs> um, I know that immediately following our, the last round of baptisms at the, in the middle of June, we had a few people reach out and say, like, hey, I'm ready to take that next step. So we're really um, we're looking forward to doing that with them and any of you who might not have taken that step yet. I have one more announcement before we bring Pastor Luke up. And I'm also really excited about this. We are going to be starting some of our food truck serves again. If you've been here at Conduit, you know that we used to have a very different food truck, one that barely ran and was often towed when we tried to towed back to the building when we tried to take it out. But last year we purchased this really nice new food truck that runs the first time you, you turn the key and <laughs> we're just excited to get back out and love on our community and serve our community in that way. Here at Conduit, one of our core values is that we'll embrace whatever whatever creative way that we need to to help bring people closer to Jesus. And our food truck is a, is a um, representation of that. So there's two serve opportunities. And I'm, oh, I, I brought my phone up to show you that the easiest way for you to get connected and signed up to serve with us is on our Church Center app. If you haven't downloaded this, there's, there's our Church Center app and there's a button that says serve and you can click, maybe, <laughs> fill it out and click um, outreach and events and I'll be in contact with you. The two opportunities are next Saturday, August 13th, we're gonna be partnering with, um, with our brothers and sisters in Christ at Fluvanna Community Church as they wrap up their vacation Bible school. Um, their theme is food trucks. So they're going, at the end of it, they're going to be having a, like a food truck festival and asked us to come and we're just going to do something really simple like hand out popsicles or snow cones and connect with the people there at Fluvanna Community Church and, the, and all of the kids that spent their week learning and growing in their relationship with Jesus. So that is from 11 to 3 that day. And um, we're looking for a few volunteers to fill two different slots. We can do two, two and a half hour slots. 
The other one is Wednesday, August 24th. We're going to be going and loving on the football players and cheerleaders from Jamestown High School after their practice one day. We thought that that was just a really good way to reach youth in our community. In, a, in one place like that, we're going to just go grill some hot dogs for after their practice, juice watermelon chips and those kind of things. So we're really excited about that too. If you're interested in serving on those, hop on the Church Center app or make sure to connect with me or Pastor Luke or Ellen or Brandon. We can get you connected. I think that's all I have. So we're going to bring Pastor Luke up and I'll pray for him as, um, as he comes up. Jesus, we thank, <laughs> we thank you that because of your sacrifice and your shed blood that, um, that we are saved and free. I was thinking so much about that during that um, Jesus, you alone. We're just so thankful that because of you, and you alone, we get, to, we get to live our lives in a way where our words and our actions just exalt you and bring you glory. Um, please, please use Pastor Luke today to, um, to bring you glory and to remind us all of who you are. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. All right. We'll see if that works now. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Luke, uh, one of the pastors here, um, and we're going to continue in our sermon series on the Minor Prophets this morning. So um, I want to start off by reading you a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. He's a theologian, if you've not heard of him before, but I thought this would be the best way for us to start our time this morning. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact, that's a vocab word for you, um, most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that is that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And so, kind of to summarize, a very wordy way of saying it, it's like the most important thing at any given time is what do we believe about God? Who do we think he is? How are we conceiving of him? Do we have an accurate picture of who he is? Or is it just a kind of a hodgepodge of things that we want God to be? Right? That's why um, when we come up here on Sunday mornings, I'm not just up here just saying, this is what I think, and here's a handful of scriptures just tossed in, right? But we open up our Bibles, right? And we, and we try and do our best to, to teach the whole content, the whole testimony of scripture, that's why we have Bibles in the pews. If you don't have a Bible that's like your own, like you don't have a Bible at home that like, or if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read or understand, you can grab any of the Bibles that are in the pews. They're underneath the seats right there. 
and you can take it home and steal it. Um, so yes, the pastor is telling you to steal a Bible. Um, we also have more Bibles on the back tables, right? So, but we, we do that and we will have that attitude about this because we believe that from here what God has revealed about himself is where we should be getting our ideas of who God is and not kind of just teaching on the things that perhaps maybe we like to teach on, right? Because I could just open up to a really nice, comforting passage, but there's also passages of like rebuke and passages that call us to something that maybe make us a little uncomfortable every once in a while. Um, the book of um, Zephaniah, which is the book we're going to be in today, is kind of an ex- kind of an example of this. Like, I could just read the passage from Zephaniah that's like, it's real kind of nice sounding, but that's not the whole book. It's not the whole message. And so I want to actually talk about the whole book of Zephaniah. What is the full picture? Because are we painting God with just a limited amount of colors when there's a whole spectrum of colors that we need to be using when we're talking about God and who he is? But before I get into Zephaniah, I can hear some of you turning to Zephaniah, and you're like, oh no, he's not going there. Um, as I want to start in Exodus. So Exodus is in the beginning of your Bible. It's the second book. I'm going to go to Exodus 20. Now Exodus 20 is the part of the story, is the part where God has rescued his people from Egypt, right? The Ten Commandments, the the plagues, and they're at Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up to the mountain, and he's getting the Ten Commandments. He's getting the covenant, the promises, and the laying out of how the relationship between God and his people was going to work. And in chapter 20, verse 1, it says this. It says that God spoke all of these words, what follows. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So right there, this is the Ten Commandments, like the really famous passage. And right at the beginning, God has what is front and center. And he's like, look, don't worship any other gods before me. This is, you are to worship me alone. But he doesn't just say that out of, out of nothing, right? He starts with naming the relationship. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the God that that is making this promise with you, that is in relationship with you. And so don't treat another God like, like me. I am the Lord your God. And it's here in the middle of verse four, it describes, God describes himself as jealous. Right? And maybe you've heard God described as jealous before, or maybe you haven't. And maybe you're just like, what in the world does that mean? 
How can God be jealous, right? And there's a couple different things that pop into our minds when we think about jealousy, right? The first one is the, like, wow, I'm really jealous of that guy's motorcycle or that car. It's really cool. Wish I had one. I don't. Right? I could be jealous of what someone possesses and what I don't have. Well, that's not the type of jealousy we're talking about. So we're talking about, like, a relationship jealousy. Well, and then there's kind of two types of jealousy there, right? There's the overreactive, insecure jealousy, right? The boyfriend or the girlfriend, the husband or wife who is just like, where are you going? You, you can't, can't go by yourself. Like, I, like, who are you hanging out with? Like, you know, this really kind of anxious, like a fear of being cheated on, a fear of being kind of like someone, you know, going elsewhere and just like, terrified of that, but out of no real evidence, out of just a place of just general insecurity of saying, I, I'm, I'm jealous because I'm just kind of nervous because I'm scared, not that there's anything actually going on. And then there's kind of actual like jealousy that comes out of sort of like you can call it kind of like justified jealousy, right? Like there actually is something going on. You are behaving with this person that does not coincide with the way our relationship is supposed to be. You're supposed to be mine. And so God here is describing his people. He says, I'm your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. And just in a handful of chapters, Moses comes down from the mountain and he finds that the people of Israel have made a calf out of gold. And they've said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. I was like, no, it's not, not the golden calf that you made out of your earrings. I'm, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. Don't run away from me. Don't pursue gods that are not your God. There's a relationship here. God is jealous like a husband or like a groom is jealous for his bride. And the bride is going and running somewhere else other than to the groom. And this is... Right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, number one, the big important thing. And then the question is, is does Israel keep that? I mean, we know they don't from Exodus because just give it a handful of chapters and they're already breaking it before they've even gotten there. But we're in the book of Zephaniah. Um, And with that kind of framing in mind, I want us to dig into... Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1 kind of introduces who Zephaniah is, and then it digs in, starting in chapter 2. It says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. So he starts off right out of the gate with this sentence of judgment. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Starts super general. But by the end, by the middle of verse 3, he's gotten down and he says, the idols that cause the wicked to stumble, I will sweep away. He's going from the general to the specific. He's like, it's the idolatry, right? When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth. 
And so we see, and we've seen in all of the books that we've been reading again and again, idolatry is the sin that his people have committed against him. And then he goes on in the next couple of verses to begin to describe what that idolatry looks like. Verse 4 says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs and worship the starry host who are worshiping the sky, the stars, and those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek him, neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. So what do we have here? Right? We have here this description of the idolatry that's going on. He's naming specifically two false gods. He's naming Baal and he's naming Molech. And he's also naming the worshiping of the stars. And so you have here... Baal was a fertility god. He was a god where like, they would use sex acts as a way to worship him, and that would hopefully, they thought, bring about fertility, bring about um, good crops and the like. And then Molech was a god that you sacrificed your children to uh, in hopes of sacrificing the most precious thing to you, the future of yourself. And by sacrificing that, you would gain something all the much greater back, was the thought. And then obviously worshiping up by the stars and saying the starry host. And it's not just that they were doing those things, just those things. Because what, notice what it says. Where does it say that? It says it here. In the middle of verse 5, it says, Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and those who also swear by Molech. Right? So he's talking about people who are not just worshiping Baal, not just worshiping Molech, not just worshiping the stars, but they're also still swearing allegiance to God by lip service. Right? They're trying to do everything inside of their power to, to just mix it all together and maybe that'll make it better. Maybe we can get what we want if we just worship all of the possible gods that we could. And then in verse 8, if we fast forward a couple verses, we see the, the, the focus shifts a little bit. It says, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold who will fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Um, strangely enough, um, when it talks about avoiding stepping on the threshold, like not wanting to step on the, uh, the sort of the thing you got to step over to go through the door, they thought that there was a god in the doorway. Um, and so they went, didn't want to step on that in order to avoid angering him. So kind of a superstition or, or honoring of the God there that they're talking about. But this kind of shifts into talking about people who have got these clothes, this status, this social prestige. He's saying they're not only just trusting in false gods, they're trusting in their own success, the own things that they can kind of wear on themselves and make themselves look good. These are the things 
that my people have worshipped rather than me. And then he goes forward in the next couple of verses and he begins to just go piece by piece of the city and say, this is how the city will be destroyed. And in verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. It's a really intense passage, right? Like, we're all kind of feeling it. Like, whoa, that's in the Bible? Like, like that's some pretty harsh words all coming out of this jealousy that God is describing, right? He's saying, I, you, you're, you're going all of these places and looking for something that I have to give you. As I kind of like look at these, all the kind of themes, the things that he's indicting his people of, he's saying, you're going to these false gods. You're going to wherever you think you can possibly get what you desire. You're kind of looking for this kind of success, this kind of fertility, like this prosperity And they're just like, well, we can get prosperity through status. We can get prosperity through these other gods. We can get prosperity through all these other things. And if we just try everything, including God, then we will surely get that prosperity. We will surely get the thing that we most actually desire. And God is saying, look, you didn't need to go anywhere else. Like You you should have just stayed here with me because I am the Lord your God. But at the, when, at, when the day comes that silver and gold, the idols that you have worshipped, will not be able to save you from my jealousy, from the wrath that is coming. And then we notice here in verse 14, right? Talks about, in the letter half of that, says that the cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. Now, I will acknowledge, if you're reading a different Bible translation, that verse might look different. This verse is kind of a really tricky one to understand and a really tricky one to kind of interpret correctly. But the NIV here that I'm reading out of and is on the screen is seeing that the mighty warrior is describing God, right? And if we were to turn to Isaiah... um, Where is that? Isaiah 42, verse 13. Isaiah verse 42, verse, or chapter 42, verse 13 says, The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. 
With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and with triumph over his enemies. And then I could probably list a dozen or so more. The Lord is often described as a warrior in the Old Testament, as a mighty warrior who is strong. And here he's being portrayed as a warrior who is bringing about judgment, who is enacting the right consequences for leaving the Lord and pursuing false idols. Now, if I ended the sermon there, right, be kind of just a, be pretty dark, right? Be not, not a lot of hope, um, but that's not the full picture, right? I'm going to summarize kind of the rest of the book or a significant portion of the book of Zephaniah. Um, starting in chapter 2, uh, Zephaniah goes through, and he goes through all the different countries, all the different nations, and he says, this is the judgment that the Lord will bring upon this nation and that nation. And then finally, after that, he comes back in chapter 3. He circles back to talking about Israel, talking about Judah, and he begins to talk and, and indict and accuse the leaders of Israel. And he begins to say, they have led people astray. They are like roaring lions. And I want to pick up back in chapter 3, verse 8. And now I want to listen for the shift because the entire book has been an indication of judgment up until now. And listen for how it shifts in chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. Did you hear the shift? You've got this jealous, consuming fire of anger. But then he says, but ultimately, my people, my worshipers, my bride will be purified. See, we now know that in nature, our ecosystems, there are a lot of forests that actually need wildfire, that actually need fire as part of the life cycle of the forest. Because Forest, if you've ever been out in one, or particularly ones out west, they get all this underbrush, all of these dead things, all of these tree branches, everything falls down, and it's all just dead and rotting. And then if a fire comes through, it will clear out all of that. And then it will, um, it actually, there are some certain trees where their seeds will only open up under extreme heat. And so when a fire rips through a forest, it looks like there's all of this destruction. All of these things have been removed. But then when we look, there's all of these new trees, all of this new growth, all of this health that has been restored to the forest. Similarly, God is coming through and he's purifying. He's removing anything that is not truly towards him. Anything that is false, anything that is broken, anything that is not 
um, worshiping him and he's purifying his people. And so we have this picture and it continues on. Says in verse 11, says, On that day, Jerusalem, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. It's a totally different picture there, right? No fear. No judgment. There will be no deceit among you. Everything will have, you will have been purified and you will be this new people, a restored people who are worshiping the Lord, who have come to him. And that is this picture. But look now at verse 16 and notice if you see something that pops up again. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you notice that the mighty warrior was there again? Do you notice that the same God who was bringing about the mighty warrior who brought the purifying fire, is now the mighty warrior who's going to sing over his people. He's now a poet singing over his people. In verse 18 says, I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. So we see here, God is making a people for himself out of, out of everyone. He's calling everyone to healing and restoration, the lame, the blind, the sick, the weak, the oppressed. And he's saying, you're my people. No longer will you be scattered. No longer will you be under that reproach. And this is a radically, this is a big picture of who God is. It's not a small picture. And it's, it's actually pretty arguably like even a somewhat uncomfortable picture of who God is because we see that God does have wrath, that God is jealous, that God will not stand for just seeking any false God. But then we also see that God is compassionate, loving, forgiveness, steadfast, patient. 
And you might say, Luke, isn't this just like the Old Testament God? Like, is this actually like what the rest of the Bible talks about? If we flip forward into your Bible towards the back, towards Hebrews, or not Hebrews, but towards Hebrews, but we're going to the book James. We're going to go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit which he has caused to dwell in us? Right? There, James, the brother of Jesus, is articulating again. He's like, no, God remains jealous. God remains in this place of desiring us to come to him and not to go any which way or everywhere looking for satisfaction, looking for the thing that we think will finally make us happy or satisfied. So what are kind of like the implications of this? Because you might be saying, well, Luke, like, I don't have an idol at my home, right? Like, I don't have a little statue. I don't have like an idolatry problem. Like, this is kind of, like, like I'm not praying to any other gods. Like, okay. And, and, I, and I do think that, like, we're a little bit different than the Israelites, right? Because they were seeking kind of prosperity and a fertility, But I think we still have certain things that we desire and that we're willing to do almost anything to get. Those things, I think, are happiness, success, significance. These are things that we really desire. What would I do to finally be satisfied and to be happy? What would I do if it meant I could have success? What would I do if it meant that I could be significant? I would be remembered. I would be an important person in any room that I walked into. These are things that our hearts still long after, particularly in our culture. And we're willing to do almost anything to get that. Right? We could kind of begin to kind of diagnose our heart. This is one of my favorite tools for diagnosing our spiritual well-being. And that is answering this question by filling in the blank. If only blank, then I would be happy. If only I had a significant other, then I would be happy. If only I got that promotion, then I would be successful. If only people saw how good I was, then I would be significant. If only other people didn't treat me the way that they did, then I would be happy. Right? We can... Think of so many things that we would put in that blank of things that we are tying ourselves to. We're saying, this is the way that I see forward to getting my happiness, to getting my success, to becoming significant, right? If you kind of want to think through this another way, you could talk about how three common ways that we define ourselves. I am what I do and how well I do it. 
I am what other people think about me, or I am what I can have or experience. What can I possess? Right? We, we fall into one of those categories. I find that most of us fall into at least one of those categories. I fall into, I, I am what I do and how well I do it. If I do a good job at a thing, can I be defined by what I do and how well I do it? Right? That's a terrible place to live, but it's a place where I'm still seeking the praise of others by doing things and impressing people and trying to make them think I'm super cool. Or am I trying to please other people? Am I trying to get them to say nice things about me? Think I'm really nice? Think I'm a good person? Or am I trying to just get the next thing that I think will be so much fun? that it will be worth posting on my Instagram. We still seek and worship idols. They might be in the forms of relationship, other people, spouses, children, jobs, success. When we begin to say, these other things will satisfy me. If we look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, I this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because this just so clearly states this. In verse 13 of chapter 2 of Jeremiah, it says that my people have committed two sins. They have first, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Right? They've done two things. There was the well of living water, and they've said, I'm not going to drink out of there. Instead, I'm going to dig my own well and that well is going to be cracked and it's not going to hold water. This is what it this is what idolatry is. It is forsaking the true God who has everything that you truly need. Who has a desire to meet you, to give you good gifts like a father would. But we're saying no, I would rather get those somewhere else. Maybe from a place where I feel like I have a little bit more control or from a place where he doesn't have the power to say yes or no to me, where I get to say yes to myself. That is a heart of idolatry. That is a place where we need to come into and we need to say, Lord, help me lay aside the thing that I am linking my life to. The thing that I am worshiping, I am giving all of my time, all of my energy, all of my thoughts and my hopes are resting upon when they ought to be resting upon you because you're the God who saves. When we shrink our understanding of God, we shrink our understanding of the gospel. Right? When we, right, like this is a, uncomfortable sermon, right? Like this was on the, we were, we were going to preach this last week, but that was family service and thought this was a bit heavy for the family service, right? But I was like, but like, no, I still got to go back and preach it. We still got to talk about this because it's uncomfortable, but it gives us perhaps a bigger picture of who God is, a picture where we see him in a way that's not just our own filter, the way that we desire to God to be like, but the way that he actually is. He is, the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
And that's, that's a massive theme in the Old Testament that maybe we need to talk more about. That like we need to start with understanding that God is big, God is powerful and deserving and have this understanding. I'm just, I, I can't help but quote from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a point where one of the children are asking and they're asking one of the creatures that they're encountering. They're saying, this lion that you're talking about, is he good? Like, is he, is he safe? Is this lion going to eat me? And then the, car- and the beaver says back to the young child, says, says, is he safe? Is the lion safe? No, the lion's not safe. He's terrifying, but he's good. Right? And the lion is, is C.S. Lewis as the author's representation of God. And he's saying, God's not safe. God doesn't fit into our boxes. God doesn't behave the way that we want him to. But he remains good. He remains righteous. He will bring about judgment where it is deserving, and he will bring about compassion and mercy. When we have an understanding of who God is, our gospel grows because we understand that God was perfect, holy, and he created us and we rebelled that we have chosen sin and brokenness, that we live no longer in perfect relationship with God, but rather in a broken relationship with him and with everyone else. You don't have to, you don't have, to have a degree in anything to see that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, that things are broken, that we in our own selves, if, you, if I were to ask you to write down, what are the Ten Commandments you think you should follow? You would write those down and you wouldn't even be able to keep those perfectly. We cannot live a good life. And when we do so, we dishonor God. We dishonor God's image in others when we fail to love one another well. And and we seek other idols. We have say, this thing is my creator. This thing is my sustainer. This thing will give me what I desire. And that's not true. We're, we're, We're leaving the well of living water, and choosing a broken cistern. And what do we do when we find ourselves faced with a jealous God and we find that our own selves are deserving of that jealousy, that jealous fire? And that's where Christ steps in. It's where God's compassion steps in. That's where Jesus Christ, God become man, as close as flesh, He came so that he might make a way for us to be restored to him. Jesus lived that life and he died on the cross so that our sin, all the brokenness of this world, all the gunk in our heart, all the disrepair in our relationship with each other and with God might be taken into the grave and be put to death. And then he rose again to life so that when we confess by faith, when we say, yes, Jesus, and we follow after him in faith, we're now united to him. We're now seen as sons and daughters. We now become part of that people that will be gathered together by God and will be sung over. That's the gospel. If we have a small picture of God, it's just mediocre news. If it's, if it's big, God is big. We truly see the gospel as 
really, really good news. And I, I think I would say that some of us need to seek the Lord in an intentional way. Say, Lord, I want to have an encounter with the living God. I don't want someone else's definition of who God is. I don't want my own conception. I want to know who you are. I don't want to ride off of someone else's faith. I want to experience my own faith. I want to know God personally. And I think that's something that God is wants. If that's something you desire, seek God and he will be faithful to draw near to you. God's merely just waiting for you to turn to him. Down here today we have our communion elements. And it's just talking about Jesus, just talking about the cross. And we do these things. Cameron will often talk about explaining communion is like it's kind of impossible, right? Because Jesus stood the night before he was going to be executed. And he took the bread in front of his disciples, before, in front of his followers. And he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he picked up the glass, the juice. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. And Christ said that no one can have salvation unless they eat and drink of his flesh. Christ broke his body and poured out his blood so that we might be restored, so that we might have right relationship with him. We, I believe that what we do here is immensely significant, that Christ is present with us as as, as the church. And so we invite you here, whether this is your home church or not, or whether you have ever been the church before, if you want to come and know Christ, if Christ's call to come forward to him is something you want to respond to, it doesn't matter your age, we don't make any rules about how old you are. If you want to um, grab your kids from downstairs and check them out and bring them up so they can participate. We make that fully available. But we're going to invite you to come forward here to partake in communion together as a church, as a community of people bought by his blood. We are no longer strangers. We're sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And we do this together as we share in Christ. Jess is going to come forward and she's going to help me. We take communion by a method known as intinction, which is a fancy word for ripping and dipping. So we're going to pull the bread off of the bread and dip it into the cup. And you can come down here through the center aisle and then you can come out here through um, 
the aisles, the prayer altars are also open if you feel called or led or desire to spend any time up in prayer here. First, I'm going to call the worship team forward to uh, for communion. Yes. The body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. Conduit, know that God's jealous love will not abandon you, will not let you chase after broken cisterns, but it will chase you down and it will bring you home. Conduit, this morning, I hope you go in peace. Know that you are loved. Go in peace.